So refresh your motivation generated earlier today to do everything for the benefit of all living beings, to relieve their suffering, help them find genuine peace and happiness, and to create the causes for the highest attainment, enlightenment, becoming a Buddha, so that you can help all living beings in the best possible way. And then make that your motivation for being here, participating in this class. So we've started looking at the Madhyamaka Prasangika school, and as you've probably heard many times, they say that all phenomena, everything that exists, is empty of existing inherently, independently, objectively, from its own side. So let's do a little meditation to explore this, to investigate this, this idea. So imagine that you're outside and you're looking at a car. So when we see an object like a car, it seems like it's existing on its own, objectively, from its own side, independently, inherently. It's almost as if the car is speaking to us and saying, I am a real car from my own side. So just see if you can recognize that way that the car appears to your mind. Now, if the car did exist that way, inherently, independently, and there are two possible ways that it could exist. The car would have to be either inherently one with its parts or inherently different from its parts. 
these are the only two possibilities. Just see if you can feel certain about that, that there are only these two possible ways that an inherently existing car could exist. Now let's explore those two possibilities one by one. We'll start with the first one, the car being inherently one with its parts. Now if that was the case, and again we're talking about an inherently existing, objectively existing car, not just a conventionally existing car, but a real car existing from its own side independently. So if that kind of car did exist, and if it was one with its parts, then the car and its parts would have to be absolutely one, one in every way, without any difference at all. Because we're talking about an inherently existing car. So if the car was inherently one with its parts, then there would have to be as many cars as there are parts. And there's probably hundreds of parts. So that means there would have to be hundreds of cars. And if that was the case, it would be very expensive because you have to buy insurance for all those hundreds of cars. So clearly that's not the case. It isn't hundreds of cars sitting there. It's only one car. We only get insurance and registration for one car. So if that's the case, if there's just one car, and that one car is inherently one with its parts, then there should be only one part, not many parts. Otherwise, there's this discrepancy, one car, many parts. It would be inherently one, absolutely one. Also, if there was only one part, and if that part were to break down and become unusable, the whole car would break down and become unusable, and we'd have to tow it off to the junkyard. So clearly there's problems if we were to say that the car is inherently one with its parts. So let's look at the other possibility of the car being 
inherently different from its parts. If that was the case, then we could have the parts in one place and the car in another place because they're inherently absolutely different. They don't depend on each other at all. They're not related to each other at all. And so then you could have the, the parts of the car sitting in uh, the Abbey parking lot and you could drive the car to town. So clearly that isn't possible. It isn't possible to have the parts of the car and the car being inherently absolutely different, independent of each other. So maybe you can think of some other possible way that the car and its parts can exist and still have an inherently existing car, an absolutely existing car. So if you can think of another possibility and the first two possibilities of the car being inherently one or inherently different from its parts, those are unfeasible, then we can conclude that there is no such thing as an inherently existing car, car existing objectively, independently, inherently, the way it appears to our mind. So see if you can come to that conclusion. If you're still not convinced, that's okay. You can also decide to explore this idea more. Okay, so last week we started looking at the Prasangika school, their views, their tenets, and um, so we managed to look at the definition of a person who's following Madhyamaka Prasangika, and then some examples of famous Indian masters who were followers of this school and an etymology of the name prasangika what that means and then we started to look at how they explain objects 
and that section in the text starts with the two truths. Oh no, no, sorry, before that, that's right. Um, there's a bit of explanation about hidden objects and manifest objects. Then we started looking at the two truths, but we didn't get very far with that. So let's pick up from where we left off um, with the definition of, a, of conventional truth, because it's a kind of complicated. <laughs> I hope I can clarify it. Um, okay, so the, the full definition takes into account Buddhas, enlightened beings, who, who have omniscient mind that sees all phenomena. And if we leave them aside for now, and just think about non-Buddhas, beings who are not Buddhas, not omniscient, not able to see all phenomena at the same time, like us, then the first part of that definition, that the part that's not italicized, is sufficient to uh, define a conventional truth. So that is an object found by a valid cognizer distinguishing a conventionality. Okay, so just that much alone works for non-Buddhas like us. So, um, and down below, there's the two types of valid cognizers um, related to the two truths. So one type of valid cognizer is a conventional valid cognizer and um, that is a valid cognizer that is able to distinguish or, or to realize, to know um, conventionalities, things that, that are conventional truths, basically. I think the term conventionality is pretty much the same as conventional truth. Um, yeah. And, and then the other type of valid cognizer is an ultimate valid cognizer. And that's a valid cognizer that is able to distinguish ultimate phenomena, which is emptiness, ultimate truth, emptiness. So the idea here is that there are these two kinds of valid cognizers and, and they, they are only able, leaving aside Buddhas, <laughs> they're only able to, um, to know or to realize either a conventional truth or an ultimate truth, and not both. Okay, so like us, for example, um, we have conventional valid cognizers. For example, you know, seeing tables and chairs and people and cars and, and, and so on, so conventional truths. So when we have um, minds that perceive conventional truths, provided we see them correctly, not erroneously, then those are um, conventional valid cognizers. And those kind of minds are not able to know ultimate truths. They're not able to know emptiness. Um, it, it's a special kind of mind <laughs> that is able to know emptiness. And that's the second one, ultimate valid cognizers. And we probably don't have that. It's mainly Aryas who have that kind of mind. So an Arya, as you know, is somebody who's um, realized emptiness directly and so so they have a mind that is able to distinguish emptiness ultimate phenomena um, but when 
they do realize emptiness when they're in meditative equipoise directly realizing emptiness so at that time they have an ultimate valid cognizer but at that time conventionalities disappear they're not able to see conventionalities conventional truths at the same time that, that they that they see emptiness you've heard that before right okay um, so these two types of valid cognizers are only able to distinguish either a conventional truth or an ultimate truth, but not both. And I was trying to think of an analogy of this, and I, what I came up with was, um, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I think in America there's different kinds of laws, like there's um, federal laws, right? Laws that are... Huh? Every American citizen has one. Yeah, and and then there's state laws. Mm -hmm. So each state has its own laws, but then there's also federal laws which cover the whole country. And there are different kinds of courts as well, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody breaks a, a federal crime, then they have to be tried in a federal court. But if it's a state crime, they're tried in a state court. Mm -hmm. So that means the federal courts have jurisdiction over federal laws, but probably not state laws, right? They don't deal with state laws. Well, let's just say they do. Let's say it's like that, you know. They only deal with federal laws. And then the state courts, they only deal with state laws. So they have jurisdiction over state laws. Yeah. And judges as well. Okay, so you have a federal judge. So the federal judge you know, his domain or her domain is uh, federal laws. They can adjudicate with regard to federal laws. And then you have state judges, I guess, and their domain is state laws. So they adjudicate, um, you know, trials related to state laws. So it's like you have these two different types of people, a federal judge and a state judge, and they have their own domain and they can't kind of interfere with each other's domain. Yeah, does that sound right? So it's a little bit like that. <laughs> These two, two different kinds of valid cognizers, and they have their own domain uh, about what kind of object they're able to know, they're able to perceive, they're able to cognize in a correct way. Valid, you know, these are valid cognizers. Okay, so one kind is able to um, cognize um, conventional truths, the other one is able to cognize ultimate truths. Um, and so, so there's these two different kinds of valid cognizers, conventional and ultimate. And so then that plays into the definitions for conventional truths and ultimate truths. So the object that is found by a conventional valid cognizer is a conventional truth. The object that is found by a ultimate valid cognizer is an ultimate truth. So that's how the two truths are defined or distinguished. Well, later we'll look at the um, definition of an ultimate truth. So that's that's fine for non-Buddhas, but then when it comes to Buddhas, it's more complicated because um, each. Let me see if I can. <laughs> I'll I'll read what how it's explained in. Um, yeah, so he says, a single consciousness of a Buddha 
distinguishes both conventionalities, meaning all conventional truths, and ultimate phenomena, the emptiness of, of all of those things. So Buddha, a single mind, one single mind of the Buddha sees all conventional truths and all ultimate truths. And so considering the Buddha's mind, then the, that one mind can distinguishes both conventional truths and ultimate truths. So you can't define conventional truth just by it's what is seen by a conventional valid cognizer. Yeah, because a Buddha's ultimate valid cognizer also sees conventional truths. <laughs> and a Buddha's conventional valid cognizer also sees ultimate truths. And so, as Geshe Zopa says, thus, a Buddha is said to have a valid cognizer, cognizer that distinguishes conventionalities only from the point of view of the object, such as a pot. Similarly, a Buddha is said to have a valid cognizer distinguishing the final nature emptiness only from the view of the object, such as the emptiness of a pot. So relative to different objects, then a Buddha is said to have a valid cognizer convention, um, distinguishing conventionalities or a valid cognizer distinguishing ultimate phenomena. Even though it's the same mind, as I understand, it's just one single mind, like let's say this bowl, this is Buddha's mind, <laughs> one single instance of Buddha's mind. So this one in instance of mind sees all conventional truths and all ultimate truths. So what do we call it? Do we call it a conventional valid cognizer or an ultimate valid cognizer? It's actually both, but from the point of view of the object. So in relation to conventional truths, then this mind becomes a conventional valid cognizer. In relation to ultimate truths, it becomes an ultimate valid cognizer. And I was thinking of another analogy. <laughs> Let's say there's a person, a woman, and she's 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 a mother. Um, she has a, she has a, she has a child. So she's so from the in relation to her child, okay, in relation to her child, we call her mother. She's a mother in relation to her child. But then her parents, her parents are still alive, and so in relation to her parents, she's a daughter, right? So we call her a mother, or we call her a daughter in relation to other mm -hmm. people. The She's same both. person. Huh? The same person. It's the same person, yeah. So similar, I guess it's kind of similar, like the Buddhist mind. <laughs> it's the same mind, but in relation to conventionalities, it's called a conventional valid cognizer. In relation to ultimate truths, it's called an ultimate valid cognizer. So that's the reason for the second part of that definition which is in italics <laughs> it's so complicated it says so and with respect to which a valid cognizer distinguishing a conventionality becomes a valid cognizer distinguishing a conventionality so that's talking about buddha's mind so it's in relation to a conventional truth or a conventional object that the Buddha's mind becomes a valid cognizer distinguishing a conventionality. Does that kind of make sense? 
I mean, don't worry about it. It's it's you know when they when they create these definitions, you know, they're trying to you know define the object in a way that covers all bases. Yeah, it doesn't leave any doubt. It doesn't leave any any holes that you could get smashed on the debating ground. So <laughs> I think that's why it is. But anyway, that's the reason why it's explained in this way. And yeah, if you just leave aside Buddhas and consider other types of beings, sentient being, the word sentient being, the term sentient being is the term that refers to non-Buddhas, everybody that's not a Buddha. So just from for considering sentient beings, the first part of the definition is, is enough. But you can also just think, in a simple way, conventional truths are everything that exists that's not an emptiness. That's the easiest way <laughs> to distinguish what are conventional truths. Everything other than emptiness. Everything that exists, of course, it has to be existent, other than emptiness. Then, next. So... This is a, a point of difference between the Prasangikas and the Svatantrikas. I think we didn't talk about this when we went through the Svatantrika school, but they have this way of dividing conventional truths. They say that conventional truths can be divided into real, the term, uh, the letter CT, CT is conventional truth. So Svatantrikas divide conventional truths into real conventional truths, for example, a car, and unreal conventional truths, for example, a mirage. So the way they divide this, the way they make this division is um, with regard to ordinary beings who, who haven't realized emptiness, maybe don't even know anything about emptiness, so ordinary beings, if ordinary beings can recognize an object to be unreal, then that's an unreal conventionality. So the example of a mirage is a good one because ordinary beings can. A, a mirage appears to be real water, even though it's not. And ordinary beings are able to recognize that. Yeah? Same with images on a TV. If you're watching a TV, watching TV or movies, and you see all these people and things on the screen, so they appear like real people. And somebody who doesn't understand how TVs work might think there are real people in that box. Um, but we know <laughs> that's not the case. Even though they appear like real people, we know it's not real. It's just because of these different causes and conditions that it appears that way. So that would be another example of an unreal conventionality. We ordinary people can recognize the, the kind of falsity of there, that there's a discrepancy between what appears and the way it exists. So that's unreal conventional truths. And then real conventional truths, like a car, um, ordinary beings who haven't realized emptiness are not able to recognize the falsity there. There is a falsity there. But it's very subtle. Um, the car appears to be inherently existing, truly existing, existing from its own side, which isn't the case. It's, that's a false appearance. 
But ordinary beings who haven't realized emptiness can't realize that, can't recognize that. So that would be an example of a real conventional truth. That makes sense? And it's because the Svatatrikas do assert that conventional truths are inherently existing. Well, that they don't have this falsity notion in their They assertions. do. No, Svatantrikas do acknowledge that that there's a false that conventional truths are false even though they 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 say they're inherently existing, but they do refute true existence. Right. So they do say there's a falsity there that like the car appears truly existing even though it's not truly existing. So they, they do acknowledge that all conventional truths are false and that they are empty of true existence and yet they appear to, to be truly existent. So they do recognize that they are falsities and yet they still make this division into real and unreal, talking about a more gross type of falsity. Yeah, there is different levels of falsity, like... Um, like the image, you know, people appearing on a TV screen, that has like two levels of falsity. One is they appear to be real people even though they're not. That's like a gross level of falsity. But then on top of that, they appear to be truly existing and they're not. <laughs> but you have to be an Arya. You have to have no, no you know, have a realization of emptiness to, to recognize that level of falsity. Yeah. So they, no, the Svatantrikas do acknowledge that there is a falsity, that there's a level of falsity with all conventional truths, but they still make this distinction. But then the Prasangikas disagree with this um, way of dividing conventional truths. So the second bullet point says, Prasangikas disagree because there are no real conventional truths all conventional truths are falsities and therefore unreal. So the prasangikas say, how can you say there's a real conventional truth? That's a bit like saying an honest liar. <laughs> yeah, it's like an oxymoron to say there's a real conventional truth. So I think it's more, to me, it seems like they're more... Um, you know, criticizing the language, the kind of terminology to say, oh, there's a real conventional truth. There's no such thing as a real conventional truth. They're all falsities. But the third bullet point, they do say, <laughs> it's all how you say it. It's all how you term <laughs> explain it. They do say it's okay to divide conventional truths into real and unreal relative to the perspective of worldly consciousness. Mm -hmm. So if you add that phrase, that qualification, mm -hmm. it's kind of long, but just, yeah. it's based, you know, from the point of view of worldly beings, you could say, worldly perspective. Yeah, yeah. from that point of view, you can talk about real and unreal. <laughs> and it's basically the same as Patantrika. They would say that example of a real conventional truth relative to this perspective of worldly consciousness would be a car, a tree, a person. And an unreal conventional truth uh, would be a reflection in a mirror, a mirage, an echo, images on a TV. So it's basically the same division, but they add this um, additional phrase, 
relative to the perspective of worldly consciousness. So if you add that phrase, then then it's okay. <laughs> okay to talk about real and unreal conventional truths. So to me, it seems like more semantics. I don't know, maybe I'm. But they do seem to make a big deal out of it. When you read, <laughs> when you read books about, you know, the differences between Prasangika and Svatantika, this is one of the things they mention. Any questions about that? Okay, then, ultimate truths. So again, we have this long, complicated <laughs> definition. And the first part of the definition is sufficient for non-Buddhists, sentient beings. So the definition is an object found by a valid cognizer distinguishing an ultimate. So you could put a, a full stop there. And that is sufficient for us ordinary beings or sentient beings, those who are not Buddhists. So, I mean, you know, not every sentient being has a valid cognizer distinguishing an ultimate. It's mainly Aryas, Aryas who have that kind of mind. But I think, and I and I, I, I think I've heard this or read this somewhere, but I'm not completely sure. So I need to check up on it. But I think that it may all they may also include like the inferential realization of emptiness, the conceptual realization of emptiness, where you realize you do realize emptiness, um, but it's not a direct realization. And so there's a image, a mental image, a conceptual image of emptiness. And I think that may also qualify as a valid cognizer, uh, an ultimate valid um, cognizer, but there's ultimate. probably a debate about it. But yeah, I'll check with I'll try to find more about that, but um, but the main valid cognizer distinguishing an ultimate would be the Arya's meditative equipoise, directly realizing emptiness, because that's definitely directly perceiving emptiness, and in the perspective of that mind, there's no conventionalities at all. Conventional conventionalities, conventional truths have totally vanished. Only ultimate truth appears so yeah so somebody who has that kind of mind what that mind finds or realizes would be an ultimate truth but then if we take into account the buddhas and how one one mind of the buddha <laughs> um, distinguishes or realizes all conventional truths as well as all ultimate truths, then we have to add that second part of the definition, um, that that mind of the Buddha becomes a valid cognizer distinguishing an ultimate in relation to ultimate truths. That's the general meaning of that second part of the definition. Does that make sense? So it's with respect to an ultimate truth, like the emptiness of a car, that the Buddha's mind becomes a valid cognizer, distinguishing an ultimate. 
That's something only a Buddha is able to have. Okay, so I hope that's not too difficult. But again, you know, <laughs> an easy way to understand the two truths is uh, ultimate truths are emptinesses of, of inherent existence, emptiness of inherent existence. And that's a quality of all phenomena, whatever exists, has emptiness of inherent existence as its true nature. So those are ultimate truths. And then conventional truths are everything else that isn't an emptiness. And that's the simplest way of <laughs> distinguishing the two truths. Okay, so then divisions of ultimate truths uh, are the subtle selflessness of persons and subtle selflessness of phenomena. Um, so um, again, an ultimate truth is the emptiness of inherent existence. And when that applies to persons like each one of us and all the other persons in the world and the universe. So the emptiness of inherent existence of persons is the subtle selflessness of persons. And then when it applies to phenomena other than persons like tables, chairs, cars, and so on, then that's um, the subtle selflessness of phenomena. So it's basically the same thing, but it's just when applied to different types of phenomena, whether persons or non-persons. And what about coarse, coarse selflessness? Because the other mm -hmm. schools had, most of them, I think, had a coarse selflessness mm -hmm. of persons as well as a subtle selflessness of persons. So according to Prasangika, there is a coarse selflessness of persons, and that's the emptiness of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, which is the same as all the other schools. Uh, although the other schools call that subtle selflessness of persons. For them, that's subtle selflessness of persons. But for Prasangika, it's coarse. It's coarse. And this is the subtle one. The subtle one is the emptiness of inherent existence of persons. And um, and then the other schools, what they say is the core selflessness of persons is the emptiness of a permanent, unitary, independent self. And Prasangika doesn't even put that on the list. <laughs> it's so coarse. It's so gross. I think it's because um, that is only acquired through studying tenets. It isn't innate. It isn't something everybody has innately. But those who study tenets would have that wrong view of, of a self, of persons. But they definitely do refute that. They definitely say that that kind of person doesn't exist. Permanent, unitary, independent self. Does Prasangika have a a core selflessness of phenomena? No. It doesn't because it can't. I think the only school that has a coarse and subtle uh, selflessness of phenomena is the Chittamatra school mm -hmm. and uh, mm, Yogacara Svatantrika Madhyamaka. 
because those two schools talk about em yeah. emptiness of, in of, of uh, external objects, you know, things not being really out there as they appear. So that's like the coarse type forms, selflessness of phenomena, and then the subtle one. No, wait a minute. Is she the mom child? Oh, forget now. How'd she be mom child child? No, maybe they don't have. I have to I have to check that. What Chita Mantra says. So Tantra. This is something Yogacara sponsors. Yogacara there are two types of selflessness. One is a coarse form, uh, empty of being different entities. Yeah, that's ex you know things being external. And existing. subtle is um, apprehending empty of beings different substances. I can't remember Chita Mantra. What do they say? Do they have a coarse and a subtle? I thought That's, both were equally subtle, but one is more difficult to realize. I forget. Yeah. Well, they do have two these two types of selflessness. One is about the names, um, things not being a naturally basis of name. But, if, but those are both, I thought both that and emptiness of external objects are the same, both subtle. Yeah, that's what I thought too. So maybe they don't have a coarse one. That's why I always have to have Jeffrey's book. <laughs> He's got this chart um, with each school and their um, different kinds of selflessness. I'll, I'll check and I'll, I'll let you know next time, unless somebody can come up with it. Okay, then, where are we? Oh yeah, so the last bullet point is um, true cessations are necessarily ultimate truths. So I think um, Prasangika, yeah, true cessations. Actually, I think Vabashika would also say that true cessations are ultimate truths because they say that all permanent phenomena are ultimate truths. I think they would say true cessations are ultimate truths, but not for the same reason that Prasangika. But the Svatantrikas, we looked at this last time, um, according to Svatantrika, they say that true cessations are conventional truths. I, I did mention that, I don't know if you remember it. But their reason is because um, a true cessation, what is a true cessation? Explain. Isn't that the elimination of a portion of the afflictions? Yeah, either a portion or all of the afflictions, obscurations, and so on. So, so Svatantrika so says that because um, afflictions and obscurations are conventional truths, the things that are that are being eliminated, gotten rid of, those are conventional truths. Then the cessation of those. The absence of those should also be a conventional truth. That's their reasoning, their way of thinking. Um, so Prasangika, on the other hand, says true cessations are ultimate truth. This came up in the Friday class recently um, in um, talking about nirvana. Maybe it was not last week, maybe two weeks ago, talking about nirvana. And um, according to Prasangika, nirvana is an emptiness. I mean, normally we say nirvana, 
like the nirvana. The nirvana of an arhat would be the true cessation of all the afflictive obscurations. All the afflictive obscurations have been eliminated, have been abandoned. So that's the nirvana of an arhat. And the nirvana of a Buddha, which is also called non-abiding nirvana, would be the true cessation uh, in which all the, not just afflictive obscurations, but also the uh, cognitive obscurations, all these obscurations, all obscurations have been completely abandoned, such that they'll never arise again. And so, um, yeah, so normally they're explained as true cessations, but then Prasangika also says they are ultimate truths, they are emptinesses. The, empty, the emptiness of the mind, the emptiness of the mind of a person who has attained a true cessation. So that would be, and I, I still, I'm still <laughs> struggling with understanding that, but it, it, that's what they say. Yeah. And again, it's a, it's, it's a point of distinction between the prasangikas and the svatantrikas, one of the things that they disagree about. So true cessations are necessarily ultimate truths. But does that mean that true cessations are synonymous with ultimate truths? Are they synonymous? Are they mutually inclusive? So let's look at the possibilities. <laughs> How many possibilities are there between true cessations and ultimate truths, according to the Prasangika? So something is there. So is there something that's a true cessation but not an ultimate truth? No, no. Is there something that's an ultimate truth but not a true cessation? The emptiness of my laptop. The emptiness of your laptop. Good. So that's an ultimate truth but not a true cessation. <laughs> is there something that is both a true cessation and an ultimate truth? What? How's it? <laughs> How well, the Dharmakaya or something like that, the Buddha's, the Dharmakaya mind would be different. Yeah, it's, no, I don't think, no, you wouldn't say the Dharmakaya, that's a mind. Mm -hmm. And a mind is, is a mind a true cessation? Mm -hmm. The emptiness of the mind of an arhat. Yes, so you could say the emptiness of the mind of an arhat is both a true cessation and an ultimate truth. We could also just say nirvana. I think you could also say nirvana. Nirvana is both a true cessation and an ultimate truth. Either you could say the nirvana of an arhat or the nirvana of a Buddha, non-abiding nirvana. Those would be examples of things that are both a true cessation and an ultimate truth. Because the mind of an arhat, isn't that an impermanent phenomenon? The mind of an arhat. Isn't you, you say it's that the mind of an arhat, the emptiness of the mind, of the, the emptiness, the of the emptiness. Okay. okay, I thought yeah. that was, you just said the mind of an arhat. That's yeah, yeah the mind of the arhat is an impermanent phenomenon. Mind is always an impermanent phenomenon. The so that's of the, mind the of emptiness of the mind, <laughs> the quality of emptiness of that mind, that is both a true cessation and an ultimate truth. And it seems like it's also nirvana. 
or nirvana. And something that's neither a true cessation nor an ultimate truth. The mind, the mind of the arhat. Yeah, mind of an arhat, a table, a body, a cat, me. <laughs> Lots of examples of things that are neither. So there are three possibilities, three yeah, possibilities between those two things. Ready to move on? Next is uh, object possessors. So these, as we've looked at before, sometimes they, they're mainly minds, minds or consciousnesses, but they also include persons. Person is also an object possessor. So this starts by uh, mentioning what prasangikas say is the person. So what they identify as the person is the mere eye, I, the words underlined, the mere eye that is imputed in dependence on the five aggregates is the illustration of a person. So what did the other schools say? What are some of the things the other schools would posit as the illustration of a person? Mental consciousness. Mental consciousness. Collection of the aggregates. Collection of aggregates. The Chittamatrans say it's the mind, mind basis of all the alaya vishnana. So they, yeah, they posit something within the aggregates, some part of the aggregates as the illustration of a person. But the prasangikas say that uh, the person is the mere eye imputed independence on the... Actually, it says five aggregates, but it could also be four aggregates because mm -hmm. in the form realm, they only have four aggregates. So it's better to say four or five if you want to be inclusive. <laughs> uh, so it's just the mere eye. And so the aggregates are like the basis of imputation, the basis of designation, and then the I, the person, is just what is uh, designated, imputed on that. So from Kensar Jambatikchok's commentary, he says, the prasangikas say the mere eye is the person who came from the past to the present and goes on to the future. The one who creates karma, uh, bears the karmic imprints, and experiences their results. They say the mere eye cannot be found when it is thoroughly looked for, whereas all the lower schools say you can find something. When you search, you analyze the aggregates, you can find something you can point to as being the person. Whereas the prasangikas say, no, if you think if you find something, then that's inherent existence. When you do that kind of analysis, that's inherent existence. And so they say you can't find anything when you search among the aggregates. So they say it's the mere eye, and the term mere uh, in prasangika, mere eliminates inherent existence. Mere eye means an eye that's not inherently existing, a non-inherently existing eye. It's just imputed on the aggregates. 
And I think many of us, including myself, when we hear this kind of explanation that it's the mere eye that accumulates karma and takes rebirth and carries the karmic imprints, kind of... <laughs> like, <Rainfines>. What? <laughs> what? How can you say that? What does that mean? And um, kind of, yeah, it's very puzzling. It sounds like there's just a name that goes from one life to the next. So I found something in Geshe Man Kelsan Wongo's uh, uh, notes about the tenant. She says, um, Prasangikas do not accept that the person refers to the mental consciousness or the mind basis of all or the collection of aggregates like the other Buddhist schools. So they don't say you can point to one of those things and say that's the person. Nonetheless, according to Prasangikas, imprints are generally deposited on the mental consciousness, and it is the mental consciousness that transmigrates from one life to the next. But this doesn't mean that the mental consciousness is the person. Okay, so there is a mental consciousness that goes from one life to the next, carrying the karmic imprints, but you can't say that's the person. Rather, the person is imputed on the basis of the mental consciousness and other aggregates. This is why it is correct to say that the person has imprints when his basis of imputation, the mental consciousness, has imprints. And to say that the person transmigrates to the next life when his basis of imputation the mental consciousness transmigrates to the next life. So it isn't that there's only this name, mere I, that goes to the next life, but there is a mental consciousness, and that's like the basis of imputation, the basis of de designation for the mere I, and that also goes to the next life. So when I hear that kind of explanation, I'm like, I don't know, it's probably <laughs> still trying to grasp at something, but, um, you know, just to say the mere I is the person and the mere eye goes from one life to the next. It's got to be more than that because the mere eye has to have a basis of imputation. Right? It's not just floating around in space, but it's something it's imputed in relation to or independent on something. And in the case of going from one life to the next, it's mental consciousness. Or in Tantra, they would say it's the very subtle mind. <laughs> but there is something. Yeah. It's the basis. But that's not the person. It's the basis mm -hmm. of imputation for the person, but it's not the person. That's how they would explain it. So let's just, we'll just try to finish this slide. So um, the next part of the next bullet points, because Venerable Lamso a few weeks ago, months ago, I don't know, asked a question about this term illustration. Mm -hmm. So I did some research and there's this big white book by Daniel Perdue on debate, it's like this. <laughs> and um, so in that book, um, let's see one here, an illustration is something that serves as a basis for illustrating the appropriate definiendum by way of its definition. For example, red illustrates the meaning of color 
So um, I think the definition of color in that book was that which is suitable as a hue, H-U-E. That's the definition of color, that which is suitable as a, as a hue, something like that. So to illustrate that definition, you can give an example like red or blue or yellow or whatever. Okay, so it's so an illustration is something that illustrates um, a definite a definiendum like color by way of its definition, that which is suitable as a hue. So that's in general what is a what is an illustration. And then the next bullet point says the definition of a person. This is a yeah, in that book itself, um, the debate book, it gives us the definition of a person. This is just a person in general. A being who is imputed independence on any of the five aggregates. So actually, this, this applies to all the schools. All the Buddhist schools, not just Prasangika, agree that a person is imputed uh, in relation to any of the five aggregates. But they don't say merely imputed. <laughs> They say it's imputed, and yet they still say, but you can point to something within the aggregates as being the illustration of the person. But then, when I was thinking about this, so given that explanation of what an illustration is, it's something that illustrates a definiendum by way of its definition, this is the definition of a person, a being who is imputed independence and in any of the five aggregates. So then it seems like as an illustration of a person, you should say somebody like the Dalai Lama, Venerable Lamsel, Venerable Rinchen. These are mm -hmm. illustrations of persons, mm -hmm. right? So why then when they talk about an illustration of the person, they say, oh, mental consciousness or continuum of aggregates or mind basis of all or me or I. Mm -hmm. So this is something that got me puzzled. Are you wanting to say that like the person that transmigrates? Well, what I thought in response to my own question was that when they say in the illustration of a person, they're not talking about persons in general, but a specific person like Venerable Lamso. If you're taking one specific person like Venerable Lamso, what's the illustration? Of, of that person, and then they point to something within the aggregates, maybe. And yeah, it's that which goes from life to life, carrying the karmic imprints, creating the karma, experiencing the result. So what is that with regard to one specific person, like Venerable Lamsel or Venerable Rinchen or Dalai Lama? Oh, some Buddhist, some schools would say it's the mental consciousness or the mind basis of all, but Prasangika says it's the mere eye. So, yeah, I was trying to get clarification about this term illustration. Why, you know, what does it mean when they say the illustration of a person? Um, like I say, I'm not completely sure. It's so interesting too, with this, the debate books, when they use you want the definition of an illustration, and then you use the word illustrating to define the word illustration. You know, it's like that which is suitable to be a form as a form. I mean, 
I kind of go, can we use another word? <laughs> I still have an answer. I the mean, question. it seems like an example. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a difference between illustration and example. Yeah. I mean, they are different words in Tibetan. They do have different terms in Tibetan. Maybe when Geshe Dardal is here. <laughs> I think that definition of that translation of form was one that when Gish was lost, he said that's been that's a bad translation, it's a wrong translation, it means something different. Yeah, that was Jeffrey's translation that I've just had in my head for eight years now. Yeah. Which translation? Um form that which is suitable to be form. He said that's an incorrect translation. What is suitable to be form? Maybe. The definition of form is that which is suitable to be form. Yeah, and that's said, what they say in the debate books. <laughs> he said that that's a wrong translation. From Who said that? Gishidado. Gishidado. What did he say? I cannot remember what he said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was some, some like perceived as form or something like that, I think was the. Yeah. Or, yes, I don't know. I can't remember the subtlety there. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to, to say, oh, the definition of form is that which is suitable to be form. I mean, how does that really define form? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, these 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 things <laughs> in Tibetan debate, Tibetan philosophy. It's uh, well, I guess it's not just Tibetan. It's um, based on Dharmakirti and Dignaga and so on, but it's often very puzzling. I'm cutting through appearances says uh, this is but this is under the Vaibhashika school. Yagesha Zopa says illustration of a person refers to what is found upon analyzing what a person is. <laughs> but you know, this is the section that I always am you know, where there's the whole section about the illustration. If you realize the illustration, it can't be you should not be realizing the meaning at the same time. Like bold pot is not an illustration of pot. <laughs> I never got that. Like when you <laughs> Yeah, if you had to realize the meaning before realizing the illustration, that is not an illustration. So therefore, you couldn't say Namsa is an illustration <coughs> of a person because, because I have to know what a person, person is, is first to before I understand that you were the illustration. Is it? <laughs> this this gold pot pot thing I <laughs> quite understood. I, I have read this a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess it all all this stuff is in the context of debate when you're debating and. You know, how do you realize something? Mm. How do you have a valid cognition of something? But yeah, it's so kind of mind-bending. I guess if you start when you're six years old, five years old, six years old, <laughs> you, you know, memorizing this stuff, and then you start with simple little debates, and then you gradually build up. By the time you're 20 or so, it all... But we <laughs> don't have that experience. Ah, oh, dear. Um, I don't know if we should do any more stuff here. I think there's just one more slide. Oh, no, there's two more. Let's just look at one more and see how far we can go. This, this is quite a long section, the section on object possessors, many, many different points. But this, this one's pretty simple. Okay, so now we start looking at minds and like the other schools there are valid and non-valid cognizers nothing different there 
And there are two kinds of valid cognizers, valid direct perceivers and valid inferential cognizers. So that's the same as with the other schools. Um, but how they define valid cognizers is different, but we'll look at that next time. Um, then they don't assert self-cognizers. That's not really new because many of the schools don't assert self-cognizers, so it's not something special. Okay, then the fourth point says sentient beings sense consciousnesses are always mistaken because things appear inherently existent to them. So that means, again, what are sentient beings? Anything that's not a Buddha, anyone, any being that's not a Buddha. So again, that's like from 10th ground bodhisattvas on down to hell beings. <laughs> All of us, we're not Buddhas. Every single one of our sense consciousnesses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, tactile, every single one of these is mistaken. Why? Are they mistaken? With respect to the appearance. Respect to what? To the appearance. Appearance, yeah. Because whatever we perceive with any of our senses, all of these things appear inherently existent. They appear independently existent, objectively existent, all those different synonyms of inherent existence. They appear that way. And in fact, they are not like that. They don't exist that way. So that means we are wrong. <laughs> well, not wrong. Not, we can still, they can still be valid. We can still have valid, um, valid cognition. Like when we see the table, um, part of that experience is correct, as long as we do see it as a table and not as a horse or something else. So that part of the cognition is correct, but the table appears inherently existent and that part of the experience is not correct. That is mistaken. So there's, there's a mistaken element in every one of our sense consciousnesses, but that doesn't mean all of our sense consciousnesses are wrong. Mm -hmm. They can still be correct. They can still be uh, valid, even valid. Okay, so let's just, oh, what should we do the last one? Last one's a little more complicated. Let's leave that for next week. Yeah, when it comes to mental consciousnesses and yogic direct perceivers, those can be mistaken or non-mistaken, but that'll take a little longer to explain. So we'll leave that for next week. Okay, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> I hope we got a few things clear. So let's dedicate merit positive energy. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore.